I think one of the real misalignments right now is the people trying to solve the problem in the insurance industry often don't get the deep market problems. And the people in the deep market problems often aren't, you know, raising the capital to solve them. Thanks for downloading this latest episode of the Instec London podcast. Whether you're a first-time listener or a regular fan, I think you're going to find this one really interesting. Matthew Grant here, one of the partners of Instec London. And in this episode, I'm talking to Richard Hartley, CEO and founder of Saitora. Saitora are one of the most well-known insurtech scale-ups in London today. But when I first met Richard, he and the three other co-founders were still figuring out how they should best use their skills. And like a lot of people we speak to, they decided insurance had the most interesting opportunities. In our discussion, Richard talks about what Saitora does, but he's also refreshingly honest about the personal challenges of building a business, how to deal with co-founders that want to follow other paths, and why turnover in staff is just a natural part of all early growth companies. If you haven't yet discovered it, all of our podcasts now come with an easy-to-read summary of our discussions available on the website. So if you want to review our conversations, head over to the podcast section at www.instec.london and a great way of sharing what you've heard with others. Hang in there to the end to find out more about what we're up to at Instec London in the next few months. But for now, here's what I learned from Richard. Well, Richard, it's a delight to have managed to grab some time with you to chat about Saitora. We've known each other for a long time, but we've never actually had the chance to sit down and go through some questions about how you started the company and what you're focusing on today. But last time I saw you was in St. Luke's. You had about 200 people at your event. It seemed to go, go very well. How, was, how did you find it? First of all, great to be here. It was a really, um, I think, productive event. Uh, what we found is when, when you can bring together some of your key customers and, and market practitioners and participants, you can you can build very valuable um, events where, where people can learn from other people. The theme really was how AI is driving huge shifts in commercial insurance, both in um, the improved kind of accuracy of the underwriting, but also the efficiency driven by automation. Good. Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. But just first of all, some background about uh, so you started in 2014, according to Crunchbase, you've got funding now over $40 million. But what was the uh, motivation for founding Saitora originally? We were um, very motivated by a huge technological opportunity we saw in, in using um, unstructured data to prevent events and to, to predict events in the physical world. And back then we, we were kind of productively naive, I think, in um, kind of our vision. And when we, we saw this ability to mine all of this data and predict macro events like, you know, revolutions, um, you know, rocket launches, um, all sorts of things. And, and we really built the, the company off that vision. And in subsequent years, verticalized it around insurance, we believed um, had the most addressable market opportunity in terms of the willingness of customers to pay for us to solve this problem for them. So... Some people start off companies because they see a real burning issue they want to go and solve. You saw a great opportunity with the access to data, clearly you identified the fact that data was becoming really important, but sort of worked your way into finding out what the, the problem was for insurance. How, how did you find that when you were out there looking for your 
early funding when you sort of had less of a specific use case you were trying to solve? You remember um, we were four very impetuous people in, in a small building in, in Shoreditch. Um, we knew nothing really about the commercial world, to be frank. Where we did have authority and passion was really at, at the kind of technological layer of how to do it. Um, I think it pushed us more into academic disciplines initially. So we, we were incubated at Cambridge. We were the first company to raise money from the university and, and subsequently grew from there. Um, as we, I think, learned more and more about the industry, we became obsessed by the insurance industry, which really, really kind of pulled us into that space. And our early customers, um, of which Axel um, Catlin was one, kind of gave us that, that market knowledge, which allowed us to build a, a valuable product. Um, I, I, I think the con- kind of conjunction of technological prowess and, and market um, knowledge is, is really important to, to build a valuable, a valuable product. And just on that funding one, it's a challenge for everybody, but what was it you think about what you were doing that led Cambridge Enterprise to invest in you? I think it was a passion we showed for what we were doing and probably just a team we brought together back then, which was a combination of different skills. I think we worked well as a group. We had unique skills as as individuals. Um, so, you know, Josh and I were, were very kind of strong on the more of the client side, relationship building, understanding problems. Aeneas is very strong on building the, the kind of core technology. Um, I think we also got really lucky in the fact, you know, my, my parents lived in Cambridge, so we had access to a great university, um, you know, VCs, investors just walking around on the streets, and, and that density of capital, talent, um, and knowledge, I think, really, really helped us and, and propelled us in those early years. It's always intriguing to see what's happened with the academic institutes and the universities and Cambridge has definitely been one of the leaders historically for funding. And now you talked about some of your other founders and that you've had a situation that is certainly not unusual, which is where uh, over time there's been some different approaches to the team. And now of those original four, there's only two of you. I mean, how do you sort of handle that situation when you're starting off with four very strong colleagues, but people decide they want to go a different way in the early stage of the Mm. company? You have to be realistic about it, I think, and um, no one really knows how long they'll go into a company. I think there's example of founders who stayed too long, um, and I also think there's examples of, of, of kind of the other way around, where um, actually companies need founders longer in, in, in into the trajectory. Probably Twitter's a, a kind of an idiosyncratic example of when founders at different points have either come back into the business to propel it to the next, the next stage. For us, um, two founders, I think, they kind of reached a point where they didn't see themselves adding as much value as they did in the early the early stages. I think that they were particularly strong where we didn't have product market fit. We were having to be very scrappy. We we were having to be very founder led, and they, they they kind of went off on separate paths. And um, that actually was was very amicable for us. Um, we're, we're on really good terms as a group, um, and I think we really thought about what does Saitora need to be successful in this next stage. That's actually how I think about my role, which is not, you know, I, I am always going to be the CEO of Saitura. I, I always think at each new stage, am I the right person to be to be in the business? When you originally set the company up, were you given advice about how to structure it so that you, if you needed to have an amicable separation, that was relatively straightforward? We, we, we did do that. Um, I wouldn't say... <clears throat> I wouldn't say we, we kind of had um, as much fall into that as, as we might have done, but we, we had kind of good lever and bad lever provisions set up to um, to make it a possibility that a founder could step away and, and still maintain um, their shares in the business. I think that's important to do because it's obviously impossible to foresee what might happen. 
Um, and, and you want to kind of create the right incentives where founders will always seek what's best for the company, not what's best for them. So another of your early investors or follow-on investors were QBE and Star, and you, you did something there that I've always thought was quite smart, which is you got them both as investors, but also they were clients. And today, a couple of years on since they came on board, do you feel still find they're providing you strategic support or more more there for the arm length? They've always been very open with us, and um, and that was like the key reason why we decided to work with strategics at that point. Um, it was driven by the desire for more market knowledge and a deeper appreciation of the business problems that existed in, inside insurance. Um, I think that's actually very hard for companies of our type to get because they often see insurance from the outside. The problems are actually a, a really, um, they need a lot of precision to solve. Uh, as you know, there's a, a huge kind of density of language just really to, that describes what insurance is, um, why, why, why some things are difficult in, inside insurance. Our two investors in QB and Star at that point really accelerated that knowledge for us. Um, today, they're extremely supportive. Um, we've actually, with both of them, we, we've expanded our relationships in different ways, and, and they continue to um, see us as a, as a kind of strategic partner for their, their shift towards becoming more tech-enabled businesses. And then more recently, or last year, you had EQT coming in as an investor, not previously an investor in insurance. I know you had quite a lot of interest when you were doing your funding round. How did you end up choosing them versus other investors? So we were lucky enough to have a lot of um, options for our Series B round. Um, we liked EQT because um, they had a very definite thesis on insurance, which was it is a, one of the last big verticals on the verge of adopting technology, and it will undergo massive shifts. And that really converged with ours. Um, we also, the partner who led the deal, a guy called Lyle Fong, he, um, he really, I guess, kind of resonated with us on the level of the entrepreneur. He, he founded three companies, really understood the kind of trials and tribulations of, of um, scaling a business. And I think the, his US experience, his operating experience in the US was practically useful for us. Um, the fact EQT have you know, 61 billion under management also means they're a long-term partner for us who can help us grow, not just in the Series B stage, but way, way beyond that. And, and that's always, always useful when your investors continue to reinvest, kind of contingent upon your success into future rounds. Um, we, we really like that. And, and clearly they, as all VC investors, look to see fast growth, particularly when they're investing quite significantly mm. in the company. So, so the pressure, therefore, is on you, not just to grow revenue, but also to hire the right people. Like a lot of early stage companies, you've had quite a bit of turnover. Uh, is that something that has been an issue for the business or is that just is a natural stage of evolution as you grow a company? It's a natural stage of evolution. Um, I kind of try to think about it in terms of um, who do you need for this next stage? I think Sequoia Capital make, make the point, which is successful companies often uh, churn their leadership team three times through, 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 the, through the life cycle of a company. And it's really true, which is you can have loyalty to people and that's important, but at the same time, you do have to be pragmatic and think, okay, if we're scaling into the US, who's done that before? Who has expertise? And I think you need the right complement of continuity and background, but also experience. So you're not doing everything through, through trial and error for the first time. I think trial and error is, is often unavoidable, but it is quite slow. So we try to think about our teams, which is let's build them in a very complementary way so we have the right people on the bus at any one time. 
And presumably, once you start getting more money coming in, it gives you the ability to go and hire people from industry who don't have to sacrifice you know, significant cuts in their, in their salary or just, just look to a stock option to, to yeah, compensate. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are definitely people you absolutely couldn't hire when you're 10 people. You know, there's some people who only join a company when you've removed a certain amount of risk. So we're hiring people now, you know, who, who are incredible and, you know, that they, they really push us forward. We absolutely couldn't have hired them when, you know, we had one customer. So that, that's something just to be aware of. There's a big opportunity cost of not hiring those people. Um, but at the same time, you want those people who have been, been with Saitora for three, four years. You can tell the stories of where we came from. And, and that, that kind of cultural reinforcement and integrity is, is also important to preserve. And I think that leads into the, the next question, which is, because you're looking at data that is open source, but to a large extent is fairly widely available if people have got the right tools, how do you distinguish yourselves from other people out there who claim they can also go and pull data from the internet and create analytics for insurance companies? You have to do something else with the data. You have to build a derivative data set on top of the data you're acquiring, um, which is proprietary, and use that to drive more value from the product. Now that can be um, built off how customers use your data. It can be built off the intersection of two different data sets. Really what you're trying to do is, at the same time you're providing business value, build an impossible to replicate product. And I think we, we've kind of seen Google do that extremely effectively in the search space. So when we think about building Saitura, we're really focusing on last mover advantage. We don't necessarily want to be first, but we want to be the last person to, to kind of bring a major innovation to the market. And on that, you've also shown a lot of discipline. I mean, over the years of talking to you, I've been impressed by how you've been very focused on, at one point, it was running experiments in different areas just to see how much you could learn, where the value is. But clearly, as an entrepreneur driven by growth with a vision with some really smart people, there is a tension between sticking to the core area where you see growth and you need to keep learning and developing versus all the other opportunities out there. I mean, how do you balance that as running a company and also keep your team focused on what's going to deliver the value, but of course not losing sight of where the next new opportunity might come from? First of all, we're trying to build a, a vertical AI company. So we are, we are trying to build something in a niche because we think there's a vertical premium. You can offer those customers more value than if you were providing something for all types of customers. That's one level where we're just focusing on commercial insurance. At the same time, I think from a market standpoint, standards will get set in the US at some point. So you do need to be aware of the timing by which your consolidation is happening. So when we think about our, our kind of growth plan, which is, well, how do we translate our penetration we have today into kind of global market leadership? That's where cash helps you in raising money because you can just scale faster and you can move into the US, Australia, Japan, and these other geographies we know are really critical for the insurance industry. I think insurance generally is, is a tough market to scale in uh, because the risk characteristics per line of business are so different. When you look at the companies who have done that, they, they tend to be policy administration systems. I think Guidewire are one of the companies who've, who've managed to scale. Um, I think some of the broker platforms like Actress have kind of done that inorganically for acquisition. Um, but that's a challenge we have, which we're focused on solving at the product level is how can we build products which transcend geographies and lines of business? If we can do that, then you create more value for your, for your customers because you're covering more of their business. And the, the way I sum this up is utility per customer is proportional to scale. The, the, more, the more coverage you give each customer of their risk exposure, 
the more value you give them. Um, and that's what we're trying to do. And on that global angle, how are you finding that getting access to data in the UK, you've been out in Australia for years, few years, now looking mm-hmm. at Australia, it, what are the differences like in terms of availability of data? And also to your point about doing something with it, you know, your ability to add value to that data. Is there a big difference in these, in these different regions? There's definitely a different availability of data and, and a kind of um, a different standard. So, so, so one of the problems we solve for our customers is actually the aggregation of data and um, smoothing the differences between different types of data. Really what we're doing with the data is driving the risk scoring models, the verification of you know, the submissions that insurance get, and also helping them automate big parts of the, the underwriting workflow. So instead of an underwriter having to kind of go through all these steps themselves, we're doing it in an automatic way. I think there's a kind of secular trend where there is a lot more data becoming available across all countries. But in all countries, um, in, in every country, there's some level of asymmetry. Like some countries have a certain type of data and others don't. Um, but in net terms, that's really radically increasing because the cost of generating data is really going down. Um, I think in the next 10 years, we'll see a huge proliferation. And that's a challenge for insurance companies to work out, well, how do I acquire this data, but crucially instrument it for my particular business process, for which the actual original data won't be built for? Um, and when we hear this a lot, when insurance companies have all a raft of data providers to work with, but, but what they want to do is work with a partner who can help them instrument it in, into their, their particular their particular workflow. And, and on that one, how are you finding the difference between companies that have got their own data scientists or their own modelers who would choose to take the raw data versus those that come to you and, and essentially you are doing that data curation, I assume you're also looking at the, the value or the credibility of the data and actually giving them a, a much more of a rigorous, you know, balanced assessment on that. Is there, is there quite a lot of diversity in the market out there between those that think they can do it themselves versus those that want to to buy the analytics? Yeah, the, the, there's definitely a difference. I think I think Ping An is often seen as this kind of guiding light of insurance companies kind of thinking, well, we're on this journey to become technology companies. And, and Ping An, I think, are probably the, the, the furthest ahead there. Then in more proximately in this country, you have people like Aviva who, who are heavily investing in data science. I think the majority of insurance companies just don't have the, they haven't made the internal investments yet in this area. And, and some of them, I think, don't see it as, as their core. I think they see their core is their ability to um, price risk, the actual inputs to that prediction process of acquiring the data, building the models. They see themselves more in a partnership type approach. And I think that's fair. And that's where a lot of our customers have, have kind of come from. What, what examples can you give of some of the clients you've had now for, for two or three years where the underwriters are actually doing something very different in their workflow because they've got the benefit of what you're providing? I can give one example where really just based on a single address or company identifier, an underwriter is able to um, just really focus their times on the risks that are profitable, the risks that are in appetite, and the risks they believe they can win. This is typically known, known as submission triage which really cues submissions on an attractiveness basis. Previously, underwriters used to spend the same time on every submission, but only kind of win a very, very small proportion of them. Now they can really concentrate the time on on the most attractive ones. Um, And we've seen that with with our customers, and that's measurable and and quite meaningful. That theme about being able to triage the risk, spend more time looking at the ones that sort of meet the the first level of criteria seems to be very strong. I guess the other thing that people look at as well is... The, the evidence from losses. And again, now you've been out there for 
a few years, are you finding that you're able to get lost data back from the insurance companies or are they still guarding that quite closely? Yes, I mean, we, we regularly um, measure whether, um, you know, the loss ratios of our customers are, are improving and that's something we, we've had positive results and we've now been through kind of years of underwriting cycles. So, so we're not just asserting that claim, we're actually measuring the claim. Um, at the same time, I think we have realized that sourcing the risk is very much a relationship-driven activity. Um, brokers, you know, are continuing to um, kind of drive more and more customer adoption. So the underwriter, yes, they're doing risk measurement, but they're also doing relationship building. Um, and you, based on that, you really want to help the underwriter make a faster, more efficient, and more effective decision, not to replace the underwriter. And, and we're we're heavily on that side, uh, more so than we were a year ago. And that's really because we've been educated about the different functions an underwriter has in the marketplace. And that's clearly playing through in terms of your ability to sign up new clients. We've talked about QB and Star, but MS Amlin, Markel, Axra XL, Sequence, uh, and more re- recently Convex uh, are all clients. Are there any other companies that, that are not on that list you're working with? A recent, um, you know, small, relatively small MGA we're, we're working with is called Unicorn. Um, and, and that's probably a, also a shift in, in market positioning we've made where we try to focus on insurance companies who have a big desire to become tech enabled. Um, and that really bleeds through into everything they do. Um, I think that's one of the unifying threads of Convex and Sequence, for example, where they have a completely clean stack. They don't have any legacy. And for that reason, they can be more visionary. Um, and they can, for example, gather all the data and all the interactions they're having and start to measure well, what are the characteristics of good underwriting decisions? Um, what are the characteristics of risk we like and don't like? And that, that they can become very data-driven. You've mentioned earlier on the platforms, and that seems to be a theme that's emerging very strongly now is the way that technology companies, analytics companies are going to distribute their data I think you've got ability to provide analytics both directly within a Saitora platform, but you can also sit on other companies' technology. Have you got examples of some of the people you're working with to deliver the analytics? To be easy and flexible to work with, you have to be able to integrate into other systems. Um, and our customers typically will have um, their own workflows in things like Rulebook, which is an underwriting workbench. I'll be using Salesforce. They may have an E-Trade platform like Actress. Many of them will have Excel-based um, pricing models, which they, 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 they've kind of brought in, they, they built internally and maybe is maintained by some consultancy. Uh, so w- we have APIs that integrate into all of these. Um, and many, many of those are pre-integrated, so all the customer has to do to, is to kind of turn it on and it's already there, which really reduces the time to um, value for them. Um, so we, we have an integrations team which, which is solely focusing on, on integrating with all of these platforms, which means we can cover more of a customer's um, business. And how helpful are the platform companies in selling Saitora? Do, the, do you tend to have to go make the sale and, and then the integration will happen? Or you're starting to find these companies are seeing the ability to include you in their offering actually starts to become one of their own value propositions when they go out and sell their platforms. Yeah, we, 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 we found that mo- mo- most recently with Dark Creek where we have an integration partnership that they're actually selling this as part of their own kind of go-to market. Um, I think it's kind of yet to be seen how successful that approach will be, but I think it, it is an efficient way to go. And I think the, the more you can you can kind of connect into these platforms, it means you, you can access customers on a much wider scale than before. 
for a startup, that's also really important because um, the efficiency of your customer acquisition is, is a key determinant on, 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 on your growth. We've talked a lot about Saitora, but just a bit about you personally. I mean, every CEO has this challenge of building a business. You've got to spend a lot of time with customers. You've got a lot of people to bring on board. I'm sure you spend a lot of time interviewing. How, amongst all of that, how do you manage to build up your own knowledge about what's happening out there in the marketplace and stay, stay fresh in terms of the technology that you're offering? I have a healthy kind of doubt whether I um, I kind of have the answers. So I, I tend to, I tend to, have to kind of hold my viewpoints quite li- quite kind of loosely on one level because I think every entrepreneur is always wrong um, with, with most things. I think Elon Musk kind of has this. He formulates this in, in in a quite a memorable way where he kind of says you have to have ultimate conviction in what you're doing on one side, but on the other side, have a lot of doubt. And that, that ability allows you to constantly revise your points of view and to drop your assumptions when, 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 when they're proved wrong. Uh, so I do that and, and I make sure I surround myself with people who um, are quite opinionated. I, I've also, um, probably four years ago, I, I used to be quite bad at getting feedback from people. I, I wouldn't kind of ask for it, but now I, now I tend to do that quite a lot um, because it's quite useful when people say, well, I think you're wrong here or uh, this could be improved and you can, you can kind of use that for your own learning. Our investors, I think, are quite opinionated too. So they're regularly kind of be very open to challenging what we're doing in a constructive way. And, and that really helps. Well, it's good to see you're smiling as you're mm. talking about getting the feedback. So you've managed to achieve that challenging thing of, uh, of taking feedback and taking it on board and learning from it. Uh, one of the other things, the help you've had and, and the sort of motivation for joining, uh, well, Bug and Play was one of the, the programs you you went with but what's your view for a sort of company in your stage to the benefits of accelerators and incubators versus just going it alone some incubators i think are a waste of time um i think some are really really valuable i think they're valuable when you, you can learn um differentiated market knowledge from them in terms of what customers want and also when you get kind of credentialization from them i think that's one of the hardest things for a early startup is to really especially in the enterprise space to really show you have credibility because um, there are hundreds, hundreds of people, thousands of people starting companies every day. There's not that much difference between someone who's mad and an entrepreneur, I think, on one level. Um, they both have a very kind of unproven vision of, of the future. So for us, the Cambridge Incubator w- was really important. Our first customer, the, the Center for Risk Studies, as you know, really important just for the kind of market credibility side. Um, and at the same time, we, we've had plug and play very useful for us more from a sociological perspective, just seeing the grit and um, just pugnacious vision of American entrepreneurs. Whereas people from the UK, we were much more kind of reticent and um, humble. And and getting that kind of power really, and seeing that kind of power and and sense of um, belief really helped us be successful. Um, At the same time, I think there are incubators who are more frothy and frivolous. And I, I, I would stay clear of those. Well, I won't ask you to name those, but it is worth mentioning for the plug and play program, you actually went out to California mm. for that program as opposed to doing the one in, in Europe. So as you look ahead for 2020, we've talked about some of the things that are going to be going on there. You mentioned briefly the US, but what other big themes do you see ahead of you this year? The big theme for us is um, making some quite deliberate changes to our product and go to market to, to become scalable globally. And we're doing that because we're being pulled by our customers uh, to cover more more of their their business and more of their footprint. So we're being thoughtful about how we do that. But we we want to end this year 
having very much a global presence. And yeah, we're really excited about doing that. Um, and we're very, very focused on the opportunity ahead of us. And just on that theme then, for anybody out there that is interested in learning more about Saitora, or in particular, who might be potential uh, employees for you, what, what particular skills are you looking at? Mindset's very important. So um, we, like, we like people who have the kind of brutality in terms of getting things done, people who are real doers. Um, and also the kind of playfulness to, to recognize startups are very volatile and you're going to have to have almost the, um, just the attraction to that type of, of, uh, work life. I think on a skill level, the, the kind of values we, we espouse are, um, very direct communication, um, the ability to constantly revise your beliefs and then to be the best at something. Uh, it doesn't matter kind of what it is, but we, we try and try and bring people together who are quite different. Um, so that's, that's one of the ways we interview. We kind of say, well, is this new candidate kind of the best out of everyone on the team at something that we think is, is going to be important now or in the future? And that's a lot of how we, we gauge potential when we hire. Well, Richard, I've asked you a lot of questions. Is there anything we haven't covered that you think is, is worth mentioning? The one thing I say is I think there are so many problems, I think, that can be solved in the insurance space that, that aren't solved today. I think a lot of capital has been deployed but hasn't been well utilized and I think the more, the more people in insurance step outside the industry and seek to solve these problems, um, there'll be more productivity as a result. Um, I think one of the, the, the kind of the real misalignments right now is the people trying to solve the problem in the insurance industry often don't get the deep market problems. And the people in the deep market problems often aren't, you know, raising the capital to solve them. I think if that could be corrected, a lot of value can be created in the next couple of years. And I really hope to see that happen. Good. Well, I think the third part I'd add to that is that people outside of the industry uh, actually see insurance as a, a really interesting place to, to work. I mean, I guess that you're, you're one of those examples that came into it. And I think sometimes people that have been in the, in the industry too long, certainly in, in the UK, get a little bit defensive or, or you know, feel it's not that exciting. But it actually is one of the areas where there's some, there's some really interesting challenges to solve. There's a lot of data coming in from outside of the industry. So it does create some really, really big opportunities out there. Well, Richard, thank you for that. And also thank you for your support for Instat London. We'd be delighted to have you as a corp member, had you on stage, uh, had some of your team on stage as well, and I uh, hope to see more of you in the year ahead. Pleasure, looking forward to it. If you are listening regularly or have had a look at the website, you'll see that we are talking to many of the founders of the most successful scale-ups in London and the US, as well as some of the leaders from insurance companies and other related organizations. We've got a great set of guests lined up, but we're always interested in new people to talk to and we'd love your feedback. So drop us an email at hello at instec.london to let us know what you think. And if you want to share your thoughts publicly, you can find my post for each of our recent podcasts on my LinkedIn page see what others think and add your own comments. We're also delighted we've now have all our events lined up until June and you can find details of these on the website as well. That's it for this week. <music>